on the Tonzilla Files. Welcome to another episode of Escaping the Cave. This is the Tonzilla X-Pod. That makes me Todd. Hi. It's going to be episode number 122. Today it's a doozy. Recording date on this one is August 7th of 2023. Continuing the theme from last week. Going back and getting some stuff that I've had from my piles of notebooks back there. For a long time while I was on hiatus. I wasn't recording podcasts. I've been reading a lot of books, doing a lot of just private writing, journaling, stuff like that. Trying to condense things down, trying to figure out how to do this weird transition, I guess, that I'm in. Talked about that too much already. I won't bore you with it again today. But this is one of my favorite pieces, and it's long. I mean, it's really long. There's a lot to it. It's almost like a dissection or an anatomy of the propaganda Trojan horse, how propaganda exploits human nature and burrows its way into our our psyche, our worldview. It affects everything about us. Propaganda is not, as I said in one of the last episodes, it's not a weapon being wielded by, you know, uh, malignant players somewhere out there. It's not something that's being crafted specifically to use against us. It's an exploit of our own mind. That's, I think, one of the very first things that has to be understood. How it works, how we invite it, how on some level, on some level, we need it. We demand it. We want it. This is how we are psychologically, mentally, emotionally constructed. And propaganda is just a natural exploit of that now. To repeat what I said in the other podcasts, I'm not guaranteeing, I'm not saying there's a cure for this. If there is a cure, if there is an antidote, a serum, to sort of inoculate us from propaganda, disinformation, deception, these political and social stories, it's called self-awareness, understanding how we think. Collectively, yeah, but also as individuals. Because you can't do it collectively if you, if you fail to do it on an individual level, right? There's a word for that. It's called metacognition. Being aware of how you think. People who are into things like uh, meditation. It's sort of the foundation of this. Paying attention to your thought processes. Paying attention to how you react to things, how you think about things, what happens in certain situations, what, where your mind goes. And then asking yourself, it's almost like stepping out of your own mind. This is where the meditation thing comes in. Stepping out of your own mind to observe yourself thinking. Metacognition. Self-awareness. And this isn't fun. Sounds neat. Neat word. It's a, a fun word to throw into conversation. Metacognition. I know this word. And it sounds noble. It sounds neat. A lot of people would love to say, well, I'm a self-aware. I'm doing... Yeah. There's nothing fun about it if you're doing it right. If you're finding this to be an enjoyable experience all the time and you're always coming out on top and you're always feeling better about who and what you are after you've done it, after you've taken a metacognition therapy session, self-session, I guess, if you're always coming out on top, feeling good about yourself, you are not doing it right. And once people run into it, that first briar patch, that's where they turn, they turn tail and run backwards. Most of the time. Now, if propaganda, disinformation, 
the sort of divisiveness, this tribal divisiveness that seems to be burrowed into our souls if we're going to survive this as the world is technologically interwoven, intertwined at the speed of light with these little broadcast devices in our, in our hands and in our pockets, the ability to take what we find, any kind of propaganda, no matter what it is, and, and, and disseminate it. Take the, the little nuclear, the intellectual nuclear football and throw it at the world through these, these devices. If we're going to get through that. This is the path that I believe, in my opinion, is the only one that's going to work. A society that cannot tell truth from falsehood does not remain free. That's Walter Lippmann. I've said it a million times. I'm going to say it probably two million more. Because if you cannot tell truth from falsehood, you're open to manipulation. You're going to be bamboozled if you're unaware of what the truth is. Or you don't have access to it. If you can't tell you're being bamboozled, how do you prevent yourself? How do you, how do you keep yourself from being uh, bamboozled? You have to want to be able to tell, for one thing. And one of the, the biggest shortcomings here, all the research that I've done, is that we are, we're just not wired that way. We are not truth seekers. Not out of the box, we're not. As soon as we come into this little world, we are not rational little critters. We're not rational little critters when we graduate high school, college, whatever. It takes a lot of work to get there. It takes training. Scientific method. I know I'm rehashing the last few episodes a little bit here, but it's okay. This needs a uh, sort of a premise, I think. It takes work to become a rational human being, and it takes effort, and it takes help. Science itself has this baked into the scientific method of cross-checking, taking these experiments and these hypotheses. And if you get a result, can someone else independent of you, perhaps someone someone who's, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Maybe a little combative. So can you give this uh, adversary, there's the word, if you can give an adversary, some, an intellectual adversary, this little experiment, say, here, try it. And they can replicate it. Someone who has no intellectual or egocentric dog in the fight, if they can replicate this thing, well, fine, then you've got something. If somebody else, independent of you and your group, can replicate the experiment, then you, this is baked into science because human beings, when they get attached to their work, they get attached to their group, their tribe, whatever, confirmation bias, all sorts of biases, well, they'll start looking for only the information that they want, the only the information that's going to support what it is that they want to believe. It takes years of training, and it's still full of potholes. Even for scientists, peer reviews, it's another example. Talked about this again, I know. People out of the box, we are wired to tell stories. We are storytellers. It's how we evolved. We told stories, myths, parables to comfort ourselves and give ourselves a place in the world to explain everything. <laughs> this incomprehensible, even now, this incomprehensible world in which we live People who had no idea what was going on needed something to explain it for them because they had this infantile, you know, in some sense, new sense of consciousness. Who am I? Why am I here? What does all this mean? Where, why do these people that I love die? Where, what happens? Where do they go? Am I going to? What does it all mean if I'm going to die? They needed something to explain this. It's a path to empathy here. It's understandable. 
what are these thunderstorms? What is all this crap coming out of the sky? And sometimes it hits people and kills them. Are the gods angry? Who's this god? We'll call him Thor, right? How do you explain a thunderstorm to a caveman or somebody, you know, 1,500 years ago, 2,000 years ago, 2,500 years ago? We understand it now. They didn't. They didn't have the scientific knowledge. They didn't have anything to, to really go on. So they made up stories. We do that still. Things that cannot be explained to us. Rationally, scientifically, comfortably, we tell stories. Tell ourselves internal stories all the damn time. Make ourselves feel better. If you're depressed, make yourself feel worse. You're locked in a loop. Storytelling is the foundation of who we are and what we do. We are not rational out of the box. To get there, it takes metacognition. It takes the awareness, the training, the ability to check yourself, to ask yourself how you're thinking, why you're thinking, what you're thinking. Is this based on an emotional response? Am I emotionally compromised here like Mr. Spock in the, the new Star Trek movie, I guess, from what, 2009? You never loved her. <laughs> Even Mr. Spock. He's half human. He's a perfect parable. He's a, a, a great metaphor for human beings. I've got, I, I, I was looking, <laughs> sort of a side note here, but uh, before I decided to do this stuff today, I was looking for a piece uh, called the God-Devil Parable, and I realized... This is how long I've been away from this. Uh, it's not a piece. It's an entire theme. I never wrote the thing up. But Mr. Spock is the perfect analogy for this because part of us can be rational. Part of us has the ability to be rational, to reason. But the other half of us, Dan Carlin did a really good piece on this uh, uh, a few years ago, I think, on another podcast, Fantastic po uh, Common Sense, I think it is. Yeah, go listen to that at some point. Dan Carlin, he's fantastic. But he was talking about his Spock mind and his Mr. Kirk mind, how he kind of goes back and forth and back and forth and back. Well, this is exactly what I'm talking about with the God-Devil parable. We have the ability to be altruistic at times, to sacrifice ourselves for other people at times. But we are also capable of horrific atrocities. Heart of darkness runs through every man. It's paraphrase of Solzhenitsyn. Each one of us, every single one of us, has the capacity for good and evil. There aren't good people and evil people. Not in my view. There are people who do good things, however you want to define that. There are people who, who do evil things, however you want to define it. Well, those definitions, they're written by the stories we tell and the groups we join. Coalitions we make. Who we deem and judge to be the bad guy, right? If you're a Muslim, Christians are evil. If you're a Christian, <laughs> you know, pick the evil guy. And it's usually, it's funny how the evildoer is usually someone who resides, out, resides outside of the group. That's their first sin. They're not one of us. They must be evil. They believe different things. They do different things. They have different customs. <gasps> they must be evil. Then we fill in the blanks after that. First comes their evil, and then everything they do is rationalized, justified in the mind to twist it into how it's not only bad, not only just something we disagree with, not just a different custom, but you know what? It could be evil. Primate brain, man. Metacognition. 
That's the path to self-awareness. It's really one and the same. Almost synonymous, metacognition and self-awareness. Not quite. Anyway, that's the first salvo. Let's get started. Those of you that hate capitalism might like this part. It's not really me, not anymore. <laughs> I've made friends with capitalism. I don't think it's perfect, but... All around you, there are people trying to make money. Who, despite whatever they claim, they have malicious intent upon your person. They intend to rob you of your lives. Yeah. Rob you of your lives by manipulating emotions and psychology in order to seize your attention, regardless of whether you want it or you actually need it. This is capitalism. This is selling a product. This is commerce. Putting stuff into the marketplace that people think they need. Sometimes they do. You need food, right? There are things you need. Your tire goes flat. You need to get a new tire, right? Those things are actually needed. Well, as the digital economy has exploded, more and more things show up that you just, yeah, you probably don't actually need. The people selling this stuff, they do not care whether or not you need their product. Our devices... These uh, connected platforms, click-for-profit sites, they do not care uh, what we're looking for specifically, whether it's them, their products, or something else. Their goal is to distract, seize attention, get the click, then sell something. That's it. Monetize. Get the attention, monetize it. This is these merchants don't care if uh, what they have peddled is proven defective after the return date. You know, it goes bad, you buy it a day after the return period's done, it breaks. They do not care. In fact, uh, if you believe in planned obsolescence, a lot of people think that's built into some of these products. Down that line, these devices, platforms, and uh, websites do not care if the informational product you're consuming is factual, let alone enlightening. They do not care if it's intellectually, spiritually, or socially harmful, unless it leads to, you know, legalese minefields. Occasionally it does. Legalese minefields that directly sabotage their profits. The conversation begins and ends with, did they click? Did they buy? That's it. They don't care what happens after that. They are in the business of making money. They're a for-profit for entity, therefore. That's where their concern lies. Whether or not it should, that's another conversation that I'll get to later. There's a documentary, I think it was on HBO, a year or two back, called The Social Dilemma. They got a lot of it right, especially the dissection of technology and big tech's multi-front war for our attention. Said in probably several rants, their sin was one of omission, the social dilemma's sin. They failed to apply it to the far left's woke propaganda because it's the propaganda that they support, the propaganda of omission. Maybe the social dilemma, was that the Tristan Harris? Yeah, I think it was. I think that's the thing that he put it. Was that on HBO? I don't remember. It's been a couple of years now. 
Anyway, human beings evolved into efficiently detect the enemy's bullshit. We're so good at seeing their bullshit, their propaganda, their deceit, their lies, that the more I learn and watch tribal skepticism in action, <laughs> the higher it rises on my list of impressive uh, human traits. The ability to detect the bullshit in somebody you don't like. We don't like. We're really good at that. I'm also coming to see that in the last 15 years, we've gotten even better at detecting enemy spin. Enemy spin. Really good at it. We know what to look for now. In fact, it's really useful. I've talked about uh, watching adversarial media, right? Like if you're a Biden supporter, go watch Fox News. They do a really good job at detecting liberal, woke, left-leaning bullshit. However, if you're a Republican, if you're more conservative, even if you're a Trump person, I know you'll never be able to do this if you're a Trump bot, but go watch a little CNN or MSNBC every now and then because they are really good. They are expert at dissecting the enemy's bullshit. Fantastic at it. It would be wonderful if Fox could apply that same sort of skepticism and analysis to Republicans, to Trump. And it would be even better if CNN, since it has a little bit more respect left than Fox News, if they could apply that skepticism, that probing adversarial media attitude to Biden, to Democrats, to liberals, they don't do it. So if you reside on the right and you go over and watch leftist media, CNN or MSNBC, you're going to see, you're going to hear the stuff you don't want to hear. That's going to trigger you a little bit because, well, this is my guy. He's attacking my guy. But what about the Democrats? Why aren't they attacking the left? You're going to notice that hypocrisy, that gap, but you're also going to miss it when you turn back to Fox News. You're not going to notice when Fox News does the exact same photo negative thing. Human beings are incredibly good, and we're getting better at it because we're inundated with it. We see it all the time. Social media has changed in the last two years, two, three years. It's not as much of the, you know, the political back and forth. We don't, we're, we're much more homogenous in who we're following, I think. Plus the switch to video with Facebook, this focus on reels has really, I think it's diffused a lot of the political combat and combined with the fact that I think we've, you know, sort of sequestered and cleaved ourselves off into more homogenous informational and ideological silos. We're not seeing that nearly as much, but we did for a long time. We saw all of this, what we thought, we, we call it hypocrisy, but in seeing their hypocrisy, we're also <laughs> indulging in our own hypocrisy by not seeing it in, our, in, and of our, in ourselves in our group. This is one of our best traits, critically thinking about enemy bullshit, the bullshit from people we do not like. But one of our biggest failings is applying that critical thinking to people we do like. That's intellectual tribalism. Selectively using the critical thinking skills. Processing and filtering information. And this is, I'm telling you, this is in absolutely everything that I have read about uh, the psychology of propaganda, the psychology of rational thinking, all the way from John Stuart Mill to, to Steven Pinker. And Jonathan Haidt talks about this a lot. Alul talked about it a ton in propaganda. The inability for people who want to believe something to dismiss their critical thinking skills. I think it might have been Jonathan Haidt. It could have been Steven Pinker. Hell, it might have been, uh, what's his name? 
Uh, Yuval Harari. But somebody posed a, uh, put it like this. When someone gets information that they don't like, they ask themselves two questions. Do I have to believe this? Must I believe this? If it's coming from somebody they don't like, must I believe this? Is this something that I absolutely have to believe? And then the elephant, Heights elephant kicks in, the post hoc rationalization, the, the, the post hoc reasoning where we start to contrive these stories in our head about, no, I don't have to believe this. I forget what the other one was, but there, there's another question about this. Or can I believe this or must I? I can't remember. I'll get to it maybe in another episode. It's really good. But it's basically, do I have to believe this or can I just call this bullshit? The mental processes, the psychological processes that go on. Whether or not we choose to dismiss information we don't like. When we wander off the informational reservation, we instantly step in steaming piles of enemy propaganda. You leave Fox News, you walk over to NBC, you're stepping in a steaming pile. Immediately, informational feces ceaselessly shat out by ideological cattle all over what's become the virtual barnyard of cyberspace and electronic media in general. I'm not convinced that anyone's actually aware of this. So maybe a couple. But we're further developing informational consumer skills. Half of them. <laughs> right? You'd think. That's good news, right? We're able to detect. We can, we, we've sharpened our skills as detecting enemy bullshit. You would think it would be easy to, to reapply this. But again, the fanatical right-wing faithful, the one that Tristan Harris repeatedly said, needs to see uh, this propaganda, the, 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 the gaps in their rationalization, the rational thinking the most, they're never going to see his work. They're never going to see the social dilemma. Because they're going to detect the liberal bias present in his stuff before they hear anything. And that will give them permission to dismiss it. No, I don't have to believe this. He's a left-wing hack. Dismiss Harris. They'll dismiss the, the documentary, his podcast, and the entire Center for Humane Technology organization, leaving him as the leader of yet another homogenous church preaching to another choir about how the other people are evil. Now, the other group, the out group, the outslanders are evil. I confess, I did this with him. I was, I was ranting and raving, just singing his praises back, I think, probably 2019, maybe 2020. I think it was 2019 because he was the first uh, person, uh, the first podcast that I found that was really directly looking into the same stuff that I was about propaganda and its interface with technology and what it's doing to us. What social media was doing to us. How this technology was affecting us. Socially, culturally, personally. Height's gone into that too. The, the psychological effects. The depressive effects of teenagers being, you know, on TikTok all the damn time. Well, Tristan Harris started to do that. But, some of you will remember this. <laughs> My background is in radio. I have a lot of uh, production skills, background, stuff like that. <laughs> I highly qualified to do a lot of things in radio, believe it or not. There was an opening at that podcast for the Center of Humane Center for Humane Technology. They had a job listing. I'm thinking to myself, "Oh shit, I should apply." Yeah, I think this was 2019, maybe 2020. Anyway, I go to their website, I find the uh, the ad, and I start looking through it, and it had basically the thing we're all familiar with now: the diversity, equity, and inclusion. Part of there where they're basically saying, we'd love it if you weren't a white, straight male. They couldn't say, don't be a white, straight male. But everything in there indicated that they would prefer to have 
a person of color, a member of the press group, equity, before they would really consider hiring (laughs) an ordinary straight white man because of his qualifications. How do they get around this? Part of the interview process and part of the selection process, the application process, I guess, was that they wanted the prospective uh, podcast producer to send a video of of themselves in like two minutes saying, why do I want to work for you? They wanted a video. What better way to find out who you're dealing with and not have to say we want a minority, no white people, than send a video? I mean, a podcast producer is never going to be on camera. What does it matter? Right? Well, that's their way of selectively choosing someone probably by race. Now, I can't prove this. Of course I can't prove it. That's the entire damn point, right? All those things, it's like you can't prove OJ killed Nicole. But, you know. Once that happened, I have never listened. I have never gone back there. I've never listened to another one of their podcasts. I have nothing to do with that organization whatsoever because they've exposed their hypocritical bullshit. They have exposed their bias. I knew the bias even before that. When I was watching Social Dilemma, you could tell. You know that every piece of critical thinking that they're putting into this problem is almost all of it is directed at the right. They're suffering from the same damn thing I'm talking about right here. All they see is the right's bullshit. They're not seeing wokeism's bullshit. And in fact, they're swimming in it with the DEI requirement for a podcaster producer, a podcast producer opinion uh, position. They're doing a lot of good work over there. I mean, as far as it goes, but it's ideologically captured. And because I'm not part of that group, part of that cult, in fact, I, uh, as far as the wokeism goes, I'm, I, I, I read something earlier. Where was this? Oh, I can't remember. Oh, it's one of the books I was thumbing through the other day. Was it Height? Oh, no. It, it'll come up again. They were talking about tribalism and how we can be part of multiple tribes. Like, we're not just a left tribe and a right tribe, a white tribe, a black tribe. We're, we're members of different sorts of tribes, different sorts of groups, how we put ourselves in the company of people who think like us, but also of people who are like us in different groups. And sometimes these these tribes coexist. Sometimes they don't touch each other at all. We're members of multiple tribes. And so I was thinking to myself, well, I'm part of the anti-woke tribe. Happy to be there. I was part of the the anti-teabagger tribe too. Once upon a time, I see these things as uh, two sides of the same damn coin. But I was also part of this tribe that he's trying to build for a while, right? I still consider myself part of that group. I just don't want anything to do with that faction of it. Because now I have to filter it through the ideological bias. Must I believe this? Do I have to believe this or can I dismiss this? Well, I can dismiss those people. We do this all the time. This is one personal example of mine, but people do this all the time. Likeability. I'll mention that again. That's why likability is so important and why agitation propaganda, just agitation in general. You're an adult, I assume, listening to this podcast. You know what agitation is. Pissing people off. Well, if you're trying to win hearts and minds, the worst way to do it if you're, if you're trying to change society, you're trying to defend society, however you want to look at it, if you're trying to bring these people closer to you, 
and into a more cooperative state, a more cohesive social state, the worst way to do it is via agitation, via pissing people off. Because once you piss people off, God, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing myself in the mirror over here. I'm with you. But once you piss these people off, you've given them permission to just dismiss everything you say and everything you believe. You're suddenly creating the Fox News junkie watching MSNBC. That's how they see you. They're going to pick apart every inconsistency, every hypocritical uh, detail you have in your worldview. And believe me, we've all got them. We've all got these disconnects. Every single one of us. Are you probably thinking you might not think you do? I'm not going to say you probably don't because I don't know who's listening to this freaking thing anymore. But especially if you're ingesting monolithic doctrine, regurgitating doctrine, you probably think you do, everything about your, your worldview and your orthodoxy makes perfect sense, has zero inconsistencies. Religious people do this all the time. The older the orthodoxy, the, the, the more places you can find something rationalizing the inconsistencies. Leviticus, for example, right? But if that's what you believe, you're going to think that it's perfectly consistent because you have convinced yourself in your mind that it is consistent. You have chosen to believe that. However... Somebody over here who doesn't believe in the book of Leviticus is going to look at some of those verses. They're going to be like, what the hell is that? Shellfish, really? Well, that's what happens when you use agitation as a political weapon, as a social weapon. You create that. So you just, you basically widen the gap. I One of the biggest mistakes that I ever made, and I found this, this popped up in my Facebook memories uh, yesterday, actually. This was probably 2012, 2011, I mean, way back there. But I, I quickly figured out that I wasn't convincing anybody of anything in these political discussions. <laughs> and I just figured, you know what? Maybe the one thing to do is to just shame people. Naked, aggressive shame tactics on these people who I find so distasteful. Politically, ideologically distasteful. Religiously distasteful back in the day. I've gotten by that. And I, I, I ran with that for a long time because it feels good. It's a sense of superiority. I'm smarter than you. And I ran with that, man. I, uh, I thought that I was, I, I, I thought that maybe if I shamed these people hard enough, that in the quiet recesses of their own homes, maybe at work, wherever, they'd have a little come to Jesus. Hmm, maybe I should reconsider this. Boy, I sure don't like feeling ashamed like that. Ooh, there's a spider on the wall. I don't like feeling ashamed like that. Maybe I should reconsider my opinion. <laughs> that was the stupidest thing probably I've ever come up with. That work? Of course it didn't work. It just turned into flame wars. That's it. He had his audience. I bet you're doing this in front of people when you're doing... I don't know if we're doing this anymore. I, I personally don't see it on Facebook anymore. I think that that platform's changed so much. But five, ten years ago, this was a almost... <laughs> A lot of what was going on throughout the platform exclusively on that platform. And, you know, if you've got 200 friends and you've got a, you know, a, a political flame war going on on your profile, well, the person that you're engaged with thinks that you're doing this in front of 200 people. Can you imagine this done in an auditorium in front of 200 people? The stuff that we used to say to each other on Facebook? In front of 200 actual people, well, of course you're going to get that kind of response. Of course you're going to get defensive reactions, hatred. 
because you've humiliated these people publicly. And now, <laughs> somehow, I expect them to come around? Yeah. It took a long time for me to figure this out. And I've still got, I've talked in the, on the podcast before, I've still got that reflex, that twitch. It's still there. It made me feel, I was good at it. Got a nice vocabulary. Not a small part of this comes from my upbringing. Emotional rape is what I would call it. Psychological abuse. Being tormented at home. Learning that. Learning how to do that to people. It fit right into my wheelhouse. I was already pretty good at it. Back in the radio days, when I was on the air, I was doing a live show. And I had callers. It was a high-profile station. And, you know, we had trolls back then. <laughs> Who would call? The phone would light up. Eh, you suck. Why don't you go work at a pizza hut? You blow, blah, 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 blah. And I had a phone recorder over there. And what I learned to do was to take this stuff, and I learned to give it back. And then I learned to turn it to my advantage on the show. And pretty soon it turned into kind of a running gag. You know, people would call up just so I'd rip them an asshole on the air. And regular callers who would do that. They liked it. They liked the attention. They liked being trolls. So I was good at this. But it took a long time. I started to read about agitation propaganda. I'm going to get back to this. The agitprop stuff is right there with a piece called Counterproductive Shaming. Not going to get to that today. I don't have time. But when I started reading the, into the Alul stuff, the techniques and the tactics of propaganda, agitation propaganda is a big deal. It's a, a pretty good chunk of a one section of that book because it's, as I keep saying, it's the agitation of insurgency, of revolution, of destabilization. You get people to hate each other or hate something, the government, whatever it is. Lenin, Stalin, I think it was Lenin, had an, a policy of agitation. That's how he sent his people out into the countryside to agitate. I know you've heard that word before, to agitate to get people riled up, to divide them, to destabilize, and give them an alternative. This is really fucking bad, but we... It's like the advertising thing, man. You create a problem to sell the solution. It's the same psychology. It's been around for a long time. Uh, you know, that was a big part of Soviet uh, the Soviet Revolution shortly thereafter. Shortly thereafter. I think this, is, this went on in... Pretty, I think every, just about every place that a revolution was started, I think Castro and Che, they had to get the peasantry behind them, right? In Cuba, how do they do that? They agitated. Well, agitation propaganda is a method. It's directly related to that. It's how you destabilize a country, a population, a group. I started seeing this. I started reading the stuff, and I was like, wow. Boy, that sounds familiar. <laughs> I started thinking back. Wow. You know, 2014, it's about the time that uh, they were talking about the beginning of the Russian influence on the 2016 election back then. I'm not saying that Trump got Russia's help. I'm not even talking about any of that. But there was a podcast back there, one of the very first ones, one of the uh, from 2014 that's in the first five that I released. There was something going on with social media that started in 2014 when the agitation propaganda, external agitation propaganda found its way to social media and began spreading around. So many different, different areas, different people, disconnected people who were saying the same, exact, literally verbatim, 
they were getting it from somewhere is what I what I how I was saying it what I the the realization the epiphany that I had in 2014 now I had no idea this was long before Trump and long before the Russian disinformation campaign came but that is external agitation propaganda you release it like a virus and then the population takes over it really is like a virus it reaches this person <coughs> They cough it on somebody else, and it spreads and spreads and spreads. Agitation propaganda is a real thing. It's a technique. It is a method. We use it. This country uses it elsewhere. United States Army dropped, or the CIA maybe dropped uh, uh, agitation propaganda on Guatemala before the United Fruit Coup. Back in the 50s, Jacobo R. Benz. Remember him? Never heard about him? Oh, let me tell you about United Fruit sometimes, my friend. <laughs> he dropped agitation propaganda among the population. These little leaflets out of planes before the CIA overthrew Jacobo R. Benz. We do it. Everybody does it. What's new, what's different is the technology, the means of distribution. It's We don't have to take a plane and fly it over your house and drop a leaflet. We don't have to, you know, produce hundreds and thousands of posters to hang on city streets. <clears throat> what we have to do is create a meme, a little meme, which are, you know, modern-day contemporary propaganda posters. That's exactly what a political meme is. It's a propaganda poster digitized for the, the, the cell phone. It's a method. It's a psychological method. It's tried, it's true, it's effective, and it's dangerous because what it exploits is the most, I've said this so many times, I can't say it enough, what it exploits is the most powerful of human emotions. No, not love, hatred. Group, individual, racial. You don't think the BLM movement is indulging in that? Same as the Klan was. That's agitation propaganda. And it, it dawned on me. <laughs> I'm back there probably, I don't know, I think I got an inkling of it probably before 2019. But that's when I, was, I really started the Alul material. Like, wow. Started to read this and I'm like, yep, I've been doing that, been doing that, been doing that. <clears throat> and then I started to see how, if I'm doing it, well... <laughs> Millions and millions and millions of us have turned us ourselves into Manchurian propagandists when it comes to agitprop. Not only the propagandists, but pieces of agitation ourselves. My face to a lot of people that I had these flame wars with back 10 years ago. My face, my profile picture on my, on my Facebook account it was probably a piece of agitation material. Just seeing me, based on what I've said, what I've done, the stuff we said to ourselves, it wasn't just me. A lot of it was coming back at me as well. It was all performative. That had that aspect to it. That's another thing that's a little bit different, I think, from uh, traditional agitation propaganda, is the performative aspect of this now. It's like it's being done in the Coliseum or on stage in front of all your friends. Now, the propaganda poster hung in the in the street in Spain or in Germany or in Russia or wherever. <laughs> United States, World War II. That was something you 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 engaged with just individually, privately. You saw it, it registered in your brain, right? That isn't the case with this stuff now on social media. 
These interactions and these conflicts are happening in front of God knows how many people. Really, how many people is in the eye of the beholder or the participant? If you're on somebody else's page, somebody else's Twitter account, somebody else's Facebook page, you have an imagination. You're imagining that if this person has 500 friends, that 500 of his friends are watching you and him go at it. So you better win. You're not going to be humiliated and embarrassed in front of 500 friends. And I know, I can hear it. I hear you. I hear you. I don't care what anybody thinks. Stop it. If you didn't care what anybody thinks, you would never put your stuff on social media. And you would probably be classified as a psychopath. Everybody cares what somebody else thinks, to some degree. I have no patience for that. I don't care what anybody thinks. That's what you want people to think. That you don't care what anybody thinks. It's a little Jamie Lannister thing, right? I was having a conversation, I think it was in the tent. Jamie Lannister and his dad, his old man, I forget his name now. Tyr- not Tyrion. Uh, what was his dad's name? Tywin. Jamie Lannister and Tywin are there. Jamie's like, I don't care what anybody thinks of me. I'm the lion. And his dad's like, that's what you want people to think. That you don't care what people think. Social media was built on the fact that everybody cares about what people think of them. And they need that reinforcement. That dopamine hit of approval. Take that shit walking. I don't want to hear it. But that's what made this worse. That's what made this difference from different from 1920s, 30s. Now, World War II, uh, even through the 60s, God knows what else, is the fact that it's performative and in our mind's eye, it's all being done on stage for people. It affects our identity, our, our perception of who we are, our standing, our status. This is different. It's much different. I forgot where I was. Jesus Christ, how long was that tangent? I've been doing this an hour already. Holy crap, I'm not even off the first page. I guess what I was saying, when Tristan Harris exposes his you know, left-leaning bias, gives the, the other guys, the people that do not agree with him ideologically, it gives them permission to dismiss him. And the chasm of divisions... Siloed, informational, isolation. It all widens. This is how an honest propaganda of omission. I'm not saying he did this on purpose. I'm not saying that uh, Harris left out leftist bullshit intentionally. I honestly don't think he sees it. But that's how uh, an honest propaganda of omission becomes little more than a well-intentioned attempt at Unity via division, something I've talked a lot about, identity politics. Unity via division. How do you bring people together by dividing them into groups? I'm going to ignore the left's bullshit. Well, you've just cleaved yourself off. You've just walled and isolated yourself off into another group. You've alienated this group by ignoring your own group's bullshit and condemning theirs. (laughs) Good luck with that. Yeah, agitation propaganda, man. That's a big deal. It's huge. It's also got a flip side called integration propaganda. A lot deeper than I ever thought it was going to go, man. Yeah, because once you divide a population, once you, you know, stoke it with hate, divide and conquer, then you're in charge and you've got all of these people riled up you know, French terror kind of hatred still coursing through their veins. Well, how do you put Humpty Dumpty, the social Humpty Dumpty, back together again? 
Did you ever wonder why the firing squads hit Havana after Castro took over Cuba? It was that revolutionary spirit, that bloodlust, still courses through the veins. You've got to restore order. You've got to clamp down. That's integration propaganda. Not the only aspect of it. Well, this is some good stuff here. <laughs> good being a relative term, I suppose. But I've got to, I've got, I'm going to revisit this whole thing. The whole agitation propaganda, integration propaganda material again. I've got it sitting on deck. That's one of the most important aspects of this. As for today, however, I'm going to uh, shut things down and move on. Uh, I've got uh, everything else recorded. I've got another, at least another hour and 10 minutes of audio. Going to chop it up and I'll bring it back and I'll uh, release uh, the rest of this either uh, tomorrow or the next day. One other thing I did want to mention about that uh, uh, Facebook, the Facebook wars a few years back, creating, stoking, participating in this performative Coliseum war and these battles. <laughs> I did try to make amends with a couple of people. I've succeeded uh, with a few. Not everybody, however. Some of those relationships were just simply, they were destroyed. If there were relationships before, anyway, outside of just the social media stuff. And one of them in particular was a guy who was a liberal. He is off the deep end, man. He proudly uh, considers himself a left-wing fanatic. He owns the term. Well, good for him, I guess. A single guy. Anyway, I decided to get a hold of him, sent out a feeler. Uh, we decided to chat on the phone. And he kind of had an idea, I think, of where I was because I, I, he and I aligned politically for a long time. I definitely don't, uh, <laughs> we're not commiserating it that way anymore. And one of the things he said was that he is so entrenched in far-left culture that the first thing he asks a prospective date, like he meets him on a dating site or something, one of the very first things he asks is their opinion of BLM. Like, he will not date somebody who is not steeped in Marxist BLM culture. He's a white guy. <laughs> All you could do is laugh, I guess. But uh, that conversation did not end well. <laughs> he had a pretty good idea. He's a smart guy. And I think the reason he agreed to have this conversation with me in the first place was so he could tell me off. <laughs> It's fucking hilarious, really. I thought about, and I wish I had, I have the capacity to record phone calls on this this board here. It's how I, I've done a couple of shows, like the remote shows. I mean, if I could record a, uh, a Zoom call, I can record a phone call. And I thought about it. I know it would have been shady as fuck, but I thought about recording that phone call, and I really wish that I had done it. Because this guy is just, just unfucking hinged Gone. I mean, he is off in cult land completely. And the thing about him is the dude has a gun charge already. I mean, he's a guy, he can't vote. I know he can't vote, not in this state anyway. <laughs> you can't have a weapon. Uh, because of his past, he's got this gun conviction. Uh, I won't give you the details. I'll respect a little bit of that. But he's just like that kind of guy. He's like the kind of guy after that conversation. He was like this before, but he's worse now. And I half expect to see him on the nightly news one night, having gone nuts and either, I don't know, killed somebody, killed himself, done something down that line. 
I told my wife, you know, anything happens to me, that's where you go first. Because this guy, he ain't right. He's like the see something, say something kind of guy. <laughs> but that's that's just it. It's like sometimes you can't reconcile. Part of this is the agitprop, but part of it is just also fueled by political fanaticism. These moral imperatives that I talked about with Joan Didion in that uh, essay of hers on morality. That once things move from beliefs and opinions into moral uh, imperatives, moral certainty, the moral certitude that Alul talked about, that's when you're manufacturing proselytes and militants. This guy is both of them. This is like the fanatic down at Jonestown who's handing out the Kool-Aid because he believes fanatically in the cult. There's no reconciling with people like that. Why would you want to? I had my reasons. <laughs> I won't be doing it again. Tonzilla X over at Substack. Go check that out. Got the YouTube channel over there as well. Got a Facebook page still for now. <laughs> we'll see how long that lasts. It's not doing anything for me. Now, what else? TonzillaX.com. That will come up in the next episode. So just be aware that that's there. If you want to go read some travel stories, stuff like that, that would be cool. Next episode's good. I feel like I'm hitting my stride again. I've been off the, been off the horse for a little while, finally getting the rhythm and the cadence going here. So, uh, yeah, you, you're going to want to check this next one out. It's a very, very good. I only got like a page in. Front and back of one page. That's all I got done with these two podcasts. There's a lot more there, so... Hopefully, if I can keep the motivation, <laughs> the inspiration, yeah, hopefully I'll uh, be shoving out some content. I'm just riding this bed out now. I always do this. I always start it too late. I don't have enough stuff to plug anymore. I'm back timing. We'll talk to you next time. So long.